I got a message burning in me. Uh, I, I got th- two-thirds of it this morning in the first service. I'm going to talk about mustard seed faith this morning. And you can move uh, over to Matthew 17. I'm going to read it in a, a few minutes. But uh, I'm, I'm going to just share, you guys know, the message that burns in my heart. I want to talk about mustard seed faith. I want to talk about our relationship. I want to talk about intimacy this morning. You know, uh, I've, I've, I've said this often. Uh, uh, there's a grace on my life. This is the one passion that I have that I go after. Uh, I want people to, to discover. I believe the gospel message is really simple, that God is love, right? His love is always good. Amen? This is the gospel message. It's the one that I'm burning with. It's the one that, uh, that, that I, I, I get up in the morning. It's the one God asks me to speak. It's the only message that I believe uh, that, uh, the, the grace on my life to give, that God is love, his love is always good. And, and, and you and I exist every day, every morning to get up and grow more sure today than we were yesterday. We've got great teaching uh, on, the, on, the, um, on the kingdom of heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. In the last 10 years, the church has gotten great teaching on what it is to live on earth as it is in heaven. But I, I, I'm telling you that my passion is, is not that we would just understand that that's the mandate on our lives, but that we would actually know how to implement it. And I'm convinced, and, uh, and this morning I'm going to dive in even more. And, and you guys have heard me speak on this, but I, really it, it is the one message that burns in me. And I'm convinced this morning again that, that while the mandate is on earth as it is in heaven, while the mandate is to live the impossible life, the mandate is to live this miraculous existence the implementation or the strategy is discovered in the scripture where Jesus says to his disciples, I pray that you would be one just as I am in my Father and the Father is in me so that you too would be in me, that you would be one. And what he was saying is, well, the mandate is to live this impossible manifestation of on earth as it is in heaven. The implementation, the strategy is intimacy. Amen? And that's what I want to run at this morning again with you. Here's the story in Matthew 17. Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. He's up there having this magnificent encounter with his father. It's a fiery, explosive type of encounter. But meanwhile, down on the, uh, at the base of, of the mountain, you, you'll find his disciples are being asked to pray for people. And one of the particular people that they're asked to pray for is a father with a son who has been oppressed by a demonic spirit. And the, the spirit has been causing the son to throw himself into the fire. And so the disciples are asked if they could pray and deliver the boy, kick the spirit out. You know the story? You guys okay? All right. So the disciples pray. Nothing happens. And so when Jesus comes down the mountain, he's just been in this intimate encounter with his father, and he comes down the mountain. And and the father brings the boy to the disciple, and he says, your, your boys, your disciples couldn't do anything about the demon. What can you do? Can you do it? And, and Jesus, basically, I want to pick up. This is what happens. <clears throat> when it came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus, knelt before him, Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire. We read this. Or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. And this is what Jesus says, and it's going to sound a little harsh, but listen, this is what he says. He says, and he's looking around, he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. In the message version, I like what it says. He says, what a generation, no sense of God. 
no focus to your lives. And Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Sounds kind of harsh. Jesus, uh, he said, um, the the message version, uh, how many times do I have to go over these things? Bring the boy to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. And this is my part here. Then the disciples, they came to Jesus in private, and they asked, why couldn't we drive the demon out? Why couldn't we drive him out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have the faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Now get this, nothing will be impossible for you. That's the gospel that Jesus was living. There were no impossibilities. Every impossibility was possible with Jesus. And he was saying to them, nothing will be impossible for you. I am actually here to show you what it looks like to live as, as an, an impossible a sol, a impossibility solution. And I am purchasing that for you. You are meant to be a son or a daughter where, where you go, all things are possible. Right? And so here's what's happening. The disciples say to Jesus, they say, okay, okay, Jesus, why couldn't we do this? Now, I like that the disciples asked that. They actually expected the demon to go. They'd actually seen demons go. But they're confused as to why this wouldn't happen. They said, why couldn't we do this? And then Jesus says something that if you don't understand where he's always coming from, you could get confused. Because he says, because you have so little faith. And the boys are like, okay, so we have... We have so little faith, so then how much do we need? And, and then Jesus says, oh, not much mustard seed will do. And it's kind of confusing if you read this, if you think that Jesus is talking about measurements. Most of my life, I've somehow navigated this as though Jesus is saying you just need a certain measure of faith and then goes on to come up with the smallest possible seed he could think of at the time to describe the size. But I want to tell you that Jesus is not actually explaining this isn't a, a, a measurement of faith. This isn't actually about measurements. He wasn't talking about the size of our faith. He was talking about the purity of our belief. He wasn't talking about the size of their actions or their words or their knowledge. He was talking about the size of their connection. He's talking about intimacy. He'd come down this mountain intimate with his father. You know that he only said what he heard his father saying. He only did what he saw his father doing. You guys okay? I'm okay. I know, that, I know you think that I'm distracted by the sock. I'm okay. He's intimate. And what happens is he's up on this mountain, and he's having this intimate time with the father. He comes down the mountain, and he sees this perverse, unbelieving generation. Listen, that could sound like condemnation. It wasn't. We know that he came to save men's lives, not to destroy them. He said that. He wouldn't have gone to the cross. He was going to the cross. He was going to get experience resurrection life. Why? So that we could have access to a believing, to a revelation, to intimacy, like he had access to intimacy. And what was taking place is he came down the mountain. He went, oh, man, you've got, you, you can have all the amount of faith you, you need, but if you don't have a purity of revelation, it doesn't matter. 
And he's walking in this purity of revelation regarding a measureless love, a measureless love that is sovereign in every situation. And Jesus is walking confident in this measureless expression of love. And we, we read this and we go, oh, he must have been talking about a measurable faith, but he wasn't. He was talking about the purity of your revelation. You guys okay? You ever heard of the name Franz Reichelt? You've heard of it. He uh, was born in 1879. He lived and ended up um, a German or an Aust- Austri- uh, Aust- Austrian born, ended up in uh, France, died in 1912. He was a tailor, was also a, uh, a designer. He had a vision. He was going to help people survive l- large falls. He was creating a parachute, he had a plan. And he had. He had been designing this parachute, this body parachute, for years, and he had done some tests on it. And then, and then the day came where he was ready. He was sure he was going to test this chute, and he was so confident. He called the press. He called. They had cameras at that point, so he called black and white. They came, and he got permission to go up the Eiffel Tower to do a test with test dummies and put the test dummies. He got permission. He got the license. All everything was approved. Uh, and then when he got up, they got up to the Eiffel Tower. Instead of putting the suit on the dummy, he put the suit on himself. He was convinced he was convinced in what he had designed. He was convinced it would work, and uh, they couldn't talk him out of it. And if you, you can Google it, it's not pretty. Uh, it's, it, it's a man jumping off of the Eiffel Tower to his death. Now, here's my point. The man's faith was measurable. It was substantial. But it wasn't about the amount of his faith. It was about the purity of his revelation. You can put a whole lot of faith in a flawed belief. It won't serve you. These boys couldn't even kick out a little demon. Jesus is talking about mountains. He's talking about impossibilities. And these boys couldn't even kick out a little demon. Why? Because it's not about a measurement. It's about the purity of your revelation. I'm passionate about this, guys. I'm passionate because I believe that the call of the church is that we would live so confident in who he is and what he says about us that we would be living so sure in the perfection of his love and the sovereignty of his love that we would live as expressions of his kingdom come. I believe that every one of us is called to an impossible lifestyle. I believe that the mountains of our lives are meant to be moved by sons and daughters with a pure revelation of who he is and who he says we are. And any flaw on our lens regarding his nature cuts us off from the ability to even navigate the daily life with a puny little demon. Demons have nothing but deception. That's all they got. Ephesians 3. Jesus, he's doing this all the time. He's saying, listen, I'm wanting to shift your paradigm. You live in the realm of measurements, but I live from a measureless revelation. Right? We know what it looks like when Jesus sleeps in a boat. We know what the kingdom looks like when Jesus sleeps in a boat. It first touches his personal life. You see, when you live sure and confident in your father's affection, it affects your personal life. The storm comes and you sleep. Why? It's not because you're not living in a storm. 
That's very real. But what's more real to you than the storm you're living in is the peace from heaven. Does that make sense? And so Jesus, first and foremost, is showing us what it looks like to live with your head upon your Father's chest. To live one with the Father. To live out of His intimacy so that the storm comes, the storm doesn't touch Him. So you know you're living from heaven when the storm doesn't touch your peace. But listen to me, it's not over there because you're supposed to be able to stand up and then go speak to the storm and, 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 and release the reality of the of the, the truer, measureless realm of heaven into the measurements you're experiencing and say, peace be still, and this water's calm and the storm calms. That's what we're all called to. That's a picture of the impossibilities, bending their knee between, before the sovereignty of God's love, and it's, of course, released by the confidence of a son or a daughter. Amen? Walking out their intimacy, walking out their mustard seed faith. Basically what I'm saying is Jesus was an expression of mustard seed faith. And he was constantly inviting us into this paradigm shift. Constantly inviting us into our native tongue. Constantly inviting us to live from the measureless into the realm of measurements. He's constantly saying the last shall be first. How does that work? He's saying the, the weak are strong. He's saying the, the poor are rich. Paul does it in Ephesians. I love this as I use this all the time. Ephesians 3 where he says... He's talking about the vast love of God. He's talking about, I want you to come to a faith in the vast love of God. By the way, that's where we're going this morning. Faith is really simply this. God is perfect love all the time. That's faith. He doesn't turn his back. He doesn't turn his face. He's always with us. That's faith. That's the purity of faith that empowers you to live an impossible lifestyle. And Paul says, I want you to, in the description of love, he says, I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That's the kind of language that you're seeing in the, in this, in the mustard seed uh, expression Jesus is giving. I, I, want, I want you to know a knowledge, know a love that's beyond the capacity to know. What is he saying? I want you to know this love that's beyond knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God, filled to the measure of that's an earthly word of the fullness of God and then goes on to say, now to him who is able to do immeasurably. See, there's this invitation into mustard seed faith that is not about a measurement. It's about a measureless revelation. It's about intimacy. And Jesus went and won this for us and displayed the perfect faith, the most perfect faith, the most transformational faith that humanity has ever seen on his way to the cross. And, and I'm really passionate about this message. I wrote about it in Prone to Love, and it's one of the messages that burns in me because if we have a flaw regarding who he is on our lens, guys, it affects everything. It, it, it puts us in a position where we can't even cast out a little demon. Walking with Jesus, but we're not walking in intimacy. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And he tells the disciples just before, he says, listen. He says, a time is coming. It's in John 16, 32. He says, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. He's re regarding, he's referencing what's about to happen at the cross. He says, where you'll be scattered each to your own home, you will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, get this, yet I am not alone, my, for my Father is with me. You hear that? 
2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God, regarding the cross, regarding Jesus on the cross, he says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Hebrews 5, or 13.5 tells us, I will never leave or forsake you. Jesus is in the garden, and uh, he's one with the Father. He's intimate, intimate relationship with his Father. Only saying what he hears his father saying. Only doing what he sees his father doing. And he goes into the garden and he begins to pray. He says, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And for so long, through the lens of measurements, I've read that as a father standing over a son saying to him, no, you got to do this. But I want to tell you, that this was not the first time in all of the narrative where Jesus said something outside the will of his father, where he wasn't actually echoing his father's heart. And please understand, when he was speaking to his father, his father was saying right back to him, son, if there was any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. And they were displaying what it is to be one. Covenant, intimate love. And then Jesus wept, and he, and he sweat drops of blood. He was in agony even before he went to the cross. And I want to tell you, I don't want to take anything away from the pain that he suffered on the cross. He suffered like no human has ever suffered. The wages of sin is death, right? Jesus never sinned, so he could not die. So when he went to a cross, when he was beaten, he was beaten beyond recognition. And he suffered beyond all suffering. So I don't want to take away the actual physical pain of the cross. But when Jesus was there and he was sweating drops of blood in anguish for what was to come, I honestly believe that he was more distraught over what the evidence of sin, he was about to take sin on like a second skin, and he was more distraught about what that would do to his intimacy. Because see, when sin comes in, what does it do? It does not change God's mind about us, but it separates us from access to him. Amen? Now, Jesus has never been outside of intimacy with his Father, never once. He's been in the Father, fully God, but fully man. Listen, he was fully man. If he had just been here as fully God, it had been impressive. But because he was here as fully man, he actually showed us, not just by going and winning for us, he showed us what we have access to as well. The impossible life. The mustard seed faith. And Jesus in the garden with mustard seed faith in anguish. His biggest anguish, I believe, was the fact that he knew very shortly, in, short, in a short period of time, he would take the sin of the world, all past and all present, upon himself like a second skin. And when he did that, he would be cut off from access to the revelation of his father's affection for him. And that was, was a cross. Beyond all crosses. But he bore it for us. And he went to the cross. And then while he was on the cross, and he was in pain, 
And the weight of sin came and he couldn't sense his father anymore and he couldn't feel him. And he felt all the feels that we felt when shame comes and condemnation comes. And he's there and he's feeling it and he's feeling it exponentially. Imagine when you've never experienced separation from God and suddenly you're experiencing. What I want to tell you though is this. We've been taught and I've been taught and I believe a whole bunch of you in this room has been taught that during this time there was an actual turning of God's face, the father's face from the son. You ever heard Heard that been taught before? Anybody been taught that? Anybody ever suggested? Anybody ever taught? Listen, it's okay. I've been taught this that somehow during this moment, sin was so strong that the father had to look away. You ever been taught it that he just had to had to glance away? That somehow an always good God, an always good loving father, just couldn't quite look at Jesus. He turned his face. You ever been taught that? I've been taught that. And here's why we were taught that because Jesus. First time in his whole existence, refers to God as God and not Father. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we've read that. Pastors have read that. Leaders have read that. And they've, for years, misinterpreted it because they read it as though they, were, they read it from the measurement lens that most of us have lived in. They read it much like the disciples uh, would have read it. They, they misunderstood what was happening. But I want to tell you, tell you this morning, the Father never turned his back. He never turned his face. Here's what's happening. Jesus is on a cross. He's always referred to him as Father. He's always been intimate with him. And suddenly he's in this moment where he can't see him. He can't touch him. He can't feel him. He can't know him. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's actually quoting Psalm 22. How many knew that? He's quoting Psalm 22. Now listen, if you were in part of the Jewish culture, you need to know this. They didn't have, not all of them had the Bible, not all of them could read. So they, they memorized the Bible and they memorized Psalms. They, they never read a Psalm and just like we would maybe read one verse and go, that's enough, that's for today. They understood that when you read the, the Psalm, you read it in its entirety. When you read, when somebody, in fact, when somebody wanted to bring up an entire Psalm, they would read the first they would uh, articulate the first line of the psalm. And so what every Jew knew at that moment was that Jesus was drawing all of their attention to this psalm when he said, my God, my God, why, should, why have you forsaken me? He was drawing them all their attention to Psalm 22. And I want to read this to you because this is so important. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the psalm. It's a psalm of David. And much like all of David's psalms, it starts out, David's so raw, he's so real. He's, he, he, he starts out with this, God, where are you? Like Psalm 23, the famous psalm that follows 22, he ends though with, he, he starts with, uh, what is it? The Lord's my shepherd. He starts going into a valley of the shadow of death, right? But he ends with, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's why he was a man after God's own heart, because he could find himself raw before God and never actually give God credit for, for where he was at. And here we are, Psalm 22, Psalm of David. Jesus is drawing all of our attention in this epic moment to this psalm, and it starts like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then David goes on for several, several verses and just talks about pain, being in pain, but I want to pick up at 13. 
or verse 12, he says, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Verse 13, roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. This is what Jesus is in the middle of. He's feeling this. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. Starting to sound familiar? Verse 15, my mouth is dried up like a post hurt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember when Jesus was thirsty, and he asked for some water, and they gave him vinegar. Remember? This psalm is a prophetic picture of what is taking place on the cross, and everyone there knew it. Verse 16, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones, verse 17, are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Verse 24, listen real close. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Very verse, the very verse that so many have used to suggest that God isn't always good is the very verse Jesus is drawing our attention to to show us just how good he is. And the next line, the next thing Jesus says is, Father, calls him dad again. I can't see you. I can't touch you. I can't know you. Every part of me feels like you've forsaken me. But you're not going to turn your face from me. Daddy, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Greatest act of faith was simply this. Your love is perfect. It is sovereign. It doesn't deviate to the left or to the right. And it isn't determined by my circumstances. Your love is always good. And my faith is that pure. That's mustard seed faith. It's way bigger than a measurement. It's a revelation of the perfection of his affection for us. And what he did at the cross was win for us access to that same revelation so that we could live in mountain-moving fashion. How you doing? There are these two guys, Joshua and Caleb. We okay? Got a few more minutes? 
I didn't get to talk about this in this first service. I believe in the power of seed. I put all my eggs in that basket. My wife and I live in the, in the absolute conviction that the seed that is Jesus will transform us. My dad once uh, brought it to me, my attention. He said, Jason, you ever seen this? And I want to sh share this with you. It's a prophetic picture of the, of the parable of the sower. And most of us read it, and we understand the parable of the sower. He sows seed willy-nilly all over the place. Falls on the, almost seems careless. Falls on the path, rocky soil. It's like he's not even thinking. Rocky soil is not ready for it. And the weedy soil is not ready for it. There's some good soil over here. And we read this and we think, and, I, and rightfully so, that this is about us preparing our heart for seed. It is. That's good. But I want to give you a prophetic picture, and then I'm going to tell you about Joshua and Caleb. Ten more minutes tops. Okay? Right. See how I did that? Like, from the stage I asked. That's like a kid asking with a, all their friends there, can I have them over for dinner in front of dad and mom? I want to give you a prophetic picture of this because I believe in the power of seed. Jesus is the seed, that pure revelation, mustard seed. That revelation, take it and take a prophetic picture of this scripture right here. Sower sows the seed all over the place. And I want to tell you that the seed is more powerful than the soil. Yes, we're meant to create and prepare our heart for the seed. But I want to tell you when the seed falls, I believe this. When the seed falls on the, on the, on the path and the birds come and get it, it's already had an effect on the path. I think it actually has an effect on the path. It transforms the nature of the path. It becomes rocky soil. And the seed is so powerful, it falls on the rocky soil. It grows, but its roots aren't are too shallow. It can't do much. The sun withers it and it dies. But I believe the seed is so powerful, the pure revelation of, other, of Jesus' love, that when it falls on the rocky soil, and prophetic picture here, when it falls on the rocky soil, it actually transforms the nature of the soil, and it becomes weedy soil. The seed falls on the weedy soil. I believe in the power of seed. I truly do. I've, I'm living like, like it actually, like the, the revelation of mustard seed faith that Jesus purchased for us actually has power to transform. It falls on the weedy soil and weeds grow up and, you know, they choke it out. But guess what? Again, it's changed the nature of the soil until finally the soil is ready to receive seed. And it grows 90, 60, 30 fold. Joshua and Caleb are sent in with 10 other spies into the promised land. I'm going to be quick. You know the story. They run into the promised land. They come back with the same report. Beautiful land. Milk and honey. You know, I don't know, grapefruits the size of three fists. I don't know. It's just beautiful. It's a beautiful place. And they all come back. Beautiful place. There's some big giants in the land, but then they all... Give a commentary. Ten of them give a commentary from the measurements of earth, a perverse and unbelieving commentary. And they give the measurement commentary, and they say, there's giants in the land, we're but grasshoppers in their sight. But Joshua and Caleb give a different commentary. They give a commentary that's mustard seed in nature. They say, we know who he is, we know who we are, we know what he's promised. There's giants in the land, but we can take them. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the people weren't ready, and the seed fell on a path. And then for 40 years, listen, we all know the story. We all read it in hindsight. In hindsight, it's simple. They waited 40 years, and then there was a generation died off, and off they went. That's not how it happened. All of you know the story. You've felt the story. You've lived the story. 
Joshua and Caleb had tent meetings. They were crazy Caleb and crazy Joshua for a long time. Why? Because Joshua and Caleb had to, had to sow seed and had to live as an expression of seed for 40 years. And they didn't know the end of the story. They were believing for an end of the story, but they didn't know it. And every day they got up and they talked about who he was, who they were, and where they were going. And every day they said, crazy Caleb, he'd have Tuesdays at Caleb's house. And there were very few that showed up for the first 10, 20, 25, 30 years. Crazy Caleb, right? Crazy Caleb and Joshua, those guys are insane. There was a whole generation ready to live in the wilderness. You know why there's streams in the desert? So you don't make camp. Crazy Caleb, crazy Joshua. And they live by faith, mustard seed faith. We know who he is. We know who we are. We know what he's promised. It's impossible. I know. And we were made for such impossibilities as this. It's impossible. I know. 400 years of slavery, 10 generations of orphan thinking. And they kept sowing seed. And the path became rocky soil. And the rocky soil became weedy soil. you got to wonder, 30 years in, they thought, oh, this is it. I'm telling you right now, they were not living for Hezekiah to die. Right? They weren't looking around for the generation that was theirs. You don't get to where you need to go if you're living for someone to die. They were living for life. They weren't looking, well, is Jebediah, he's getting old. Put on a stick, maybe he'll fall over it. When he dies, we can go in. That's not what they were doing. That's not the nature of faith. They were living this powerful faith, mountain-moving faith. I want to tell you that your life is the, is the seed that moves the mountain. And there's a whole lot of Joshua Caleb's in here, and I put myself among you. I'm living a crazy faith. Don't go to that guy's house, man. Holy Spirit might come. 35 years in, they started to notice there's a young generation. There's a young generation that's believing. There's a young generation that's caught a hold of something. Good soil. Good soil. Good soil. And two men in 40 years changed two million minds and hearts. Two believers, two mustard seed believers changed the entire narrative of 10 generations of orphan thinking, 400 years of slavery. Two believers said, I know who he is. I know who I am. I know what we're called to. I know it's impossible. And you were created to take the impossible and make it possible. Everyone in this room has been given a, a, a mountain. I want to tell you that your life is the mustard seed. Yes, mustard seed faith for the moment, but your life is the mustard seed. Family is the long game. Jesus is in the long game. And we've been called and invited to, to live with such powerful, radical faith that we say, it doesn't matter what everyone else is saying. It doesn't matter what my circumstances are. It doesn't matter that it's been 35 years and I haven't seen breakthrough. It doesn't matter. I'm preaching to myself. I'm all in. It doesn't matter. My God is good. I know who he is. I know he is sovereign love, and he is good, and I will not be moved from this place. Come to my house. Because <laughs> you know what? Only two men 
You want to know how you live a long life? Believe. A whole generation dies, but these guys are healthy enough to lead an entire army, an entire nation into the promise. And they go and they take that promise. Listen, most of what we want in life, God will give us, but most of what we're supposed to take, most of the impossibilities we're called to, most of those little demons we're supposed to flick off, we got to go get that. And we go get that by living in a pure faith that says, I will not be moved left or right. He is good. I will not be moved on it. He is sovereign. He's never turned his face from me. He's never turned his face from me. He's never turned his face from me. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and stand. I want to pray for you.